<laughs> well. If you will turn with me to uh, Psalm 25. Psalm 25. We will, as we are making our way through the book of Psalms, book one of the Psalms, we are coming this morning to a new uh, grouping, a new section of Psalms that essentially runs from Psalm 25 to Psalm 34. As we just finished uh, last week, the group of Psalms from 15 to 24. We're going to look at the whole psalm uh, this morning, and so I'll begin by uh, reading uh, the whole psalm uh, with you, and then we will uh, pray and begin looking at what we find here. This is, of course, a, a psalm of David, as we see in the very beginning of the psalm, the superscript, and we begin by reading in verse 1, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in You. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for You. Redeem Israel, O oh God, 
out of all his troubles. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, as we see in this psalm, David knew you as a good God, as a God who, on the basis of that goodness, was a God he could go to and cry out to and lift up his soul to and request pardon from sin, knowing that you would do so. And that you delight to forgive sinners of their sins and to instruct them in righteousness. Lord, in the same way that David saw your goodness, we desire to see it as well. To know you as our God. As the God who has forgiven us, who has pardoned our guilt who has given us Christ and who teaches us truth and righteousness. One of the promises of Your Word that we find in the prophets and find quoted by Christ Himself is that they shall all, Your people shall all be taught of the Lord. So Lord, this is what we desire, that You would teach us and teach us From this psalm we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our psalm that we're looking at this morning was written as an acrostic. With the exception of only a few lines in the psalm, each line begins with a word that follows the order of the Hebrew alphabet. The first word, the first line, begins with the first letter of the alphabet. In the second line, we have a change from this pattern. It is the second word of the second line that begins with the second letter of the alphabet. But then in the third line, the first word begins with the third letter of the alphabet, and then the pattern continues so on and so forth. So that if this psalm were written in English, you could scan through the first letter of the first line and you'd see the English alphabet, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Only it's written this way in Hebrew. This is the basic pattern of an acrostic poem in the Psalms. And this acrostic occurs here in Psalm 24, or excuse me, Psalm 25, as well as in Psalm 34, so that these two psalms become bookends of this grouping of psalms between 25 and 34. Now, writing a psalm as an acrostic serves several purposes, one of which is, of course, to ease the process of memorization. Right? So as you're, you're trying to remember what the words of the psalm are and to meditate on them, having each line begin with the letter of the alphabet you're very familiar with gives you a jump start. Right? You, you know what's coming next. And so it, it helps you to remember and to recite the words of the psalm. 
But related to this, the importance of memorizing the psalm was because the psalm teaches you important truths about God. In a sense, we can think of a psalm like this, like a a modern-day catechism, right? Where you've got a question-and-answer form of teaching that is intended to instruct you in certain core key truths about God and about the Bible and about His works. And similarly, the acrostic serves a pedagogical purpose. It is intentionally teaching certain truths about God. And in this particular psalm that we find ourselves in this morning, one of the central truths that is being taught all throughout the psalm, and that's being addressed essentially from a variety of different angles, is found in verse 8. It's about the goodness of God. The first line of verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. And essentially, everything in this psalm expounds upon something that is related to the goodness of God. What makes Him good? What are the works that He does that shows Himself to be a good God? And so this is what I want to consider together this morning. Why is the Lord said to be a good God? I want us to look at this particular attribute of God. What makes Him, above all, a good God? And the first reason we find in the psalm is that He is good because He instructs sinners in the way. He instructs sinners in the way. Now, in verse 8, you can see that this is a logical inference that is drawn from the assertion, from the, the statement of the goodness of the Lord. Verse 8 again says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. This is what follows. This is what is a natural flow from the claim that God is good. He is a God who instructs sinners in the way. And it's worth paying special attention again to who is being instructed. The Lord is good not because He is instructing the righteous. Or, maybe to be more biblically accurate, it's not because He's instructing those who think themselves to be righteous. uh, Who don't believe that they have any need for Him. uh, Who believe that they are perfectly fine within themselves. He's not instructing the self-righteous. He's not instructing the self-sufficient. He is instructing those who need Him the most. He is good because He instructs sinners. Now, 
Who are these sinners in the psalm? And I think that's an important question to ask because it could be a, a, a very um, easy conclusion to draw of just saying, well, well, everybody's sinners, right? Everybody's sinners, and so everybody is being referred to here, right? All people are sinners, and so he instructs all people in the way. I would have, of course, an appearance of truth to it, but the context of the psalm doesn't allow us to draw that particular conclusion. Now, the sinners here have a specific definition. They are described. They have characteristics and attributes with them. We can see this all throughout this surrounding context of the psalm. There are people who are excluded from this category. And there are people who are included in this category. For example, in verse 2, David speaks of his enemies and those who do not wait for the Lord and those who are wantonly treacherous. They, they act evil with no justification at all. And he speaks of them as those who will be put to shame. Or in verses 19 to 20, the end of the psalm, he speaks of his foes, of those who hate him, and he cries out to the Lord that he would be delivered from them. That means David is victorious and they fall. They're judged. They perish. These enemies then, who are not only enemies of David, but are also those who have rejected the God of David, these enemies are not the sinners who are being instructed by the Lord. The sinners are a different group of people. And from the context of the psalm, we can understand something of who these sinners are. For one thing, these sinners are a people who no doubt have sins. They're guilty, right? They, they have real guilt before the Lord. They have done evil deeds. They are in need of forgiveness. This is, of course, just what the basic meaning of the word is. These sinners are sinners because they have a sin nature and because they commit sin. We are not talking here about a people who are perfectly righteous, about a people who have no faults at all. David himself would be included in this category of the sinners. There is certainly a sense in which we see throughout the Psalms and we can see throughout the Bible that David would be considered a righteous man. He loved God. He loved the Word of God. He was God's anointed king. He trusted in the promises of God. He was a prophet of God. But we know as well that David had some tremendous falls. David had some horrific sins that he had committed. And he himself was not above acknowledging and confessing his own sinfulness. He even says in verse 
11, pardon my guilt, for it is great. He's not trying to acknowledging that he is a great sinner. And so the sinner is not a person who is without guilt. He is indeed guilty before God and in great need of forgiveness. But we also find that the sinners who are being referred to have other characteristics that show that they do not love their sin. They do not embrace their sin, delight in their sin. They are not stubbornly refusing to repent and turn from their sin. In verse 9, we find that the sinner is humble. We read there, David saying of the Lord, He leads the humble in what is right and He teaches the humble His way. And so in verse 8, the Lord instructs sinners in the way. And then in verse 9, He teaches the humble His way. So the sinners and the humble, these are the same group of people. The sinner here is not a prideful sinner, in other words. This isn't someone, again, who loves their sin and arrogantly lives in it. This is someone who's been chastened by their sin. This is someone who has seen truly in the mind, in the heart, from their experience, the ugliness of their sin. And they know it's ugly. And it has chastened them and humbled them before Almighty God as they see the destructive and wicked power of sin within them, it causes them to be lowly and needy. It causes them to cry out to God for His help, for His power, for His salvation, to rescue them, to give them freedom from the bondage of sin. And in that grace and power, they walk. We find also that the sinner is actually someone who is characterized by obedience to the Word of God and the covenants of God. In verse 10, for example, we read, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. The psalm here, is still speaking about the same people. You can be a covenant keeper and a sinner at the same time. In fact, we know that under the Old Covenant, there were provisions for the sinner to offer sacrifices to atone for his sin. We see even in verse 11 that the sinner has guilt that he needs pardon from. And the covenant provides the means by which that pardon can be granted. And in a similar way, under the new covenant, we who are in Christ are also sinners who are in need of pardoning. And that pardoning comes through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
We can be a people who are marked by and characterized by obedience to and faithfulness to the new covenant while also being sinners who are in daily need of pardon and forgiveness. We are not a people who are completely without sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But it goes on to say that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That speaks of an ongoing need of the atoning work of Christ to day by day be applied to us so that we can walk in the freedom that comes from the grace of God. And even the Apostle Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am chief, he says. This is an apostle. This is a man who we seek to imitate as he imitates Christ. And he is saying of himself still, I'm the chief of sinners. And Christ has come. Christ dies. Christ forgives sinners like me. And so being in covenant with God and keeping His covenant does not mean, of course, that you are without sin. But it does mean that the general characteristics, the general habits of your life should reflect that though you are a sinner, you are also one who has come to know God and who brings the entirety of your life, your mind, your heart, your desires, your works, you bring it all under the authority of God and His Word because you have found Him to be good. Far better than any sins you have ever tasted. Which leads us to another observation that we can make about the sinner from this psalm, which is that the sinner is also one who fears the Lord. The sinner here fears the Lord. We read in verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he, that is the Lord, instruct in the way that he should choose. Notice again the parallel between this verse, verse 12, and verse 8. In verse 12, the man who fears the Lord is instructed in the way that he should choose. And in verse 8, sinners are instructed by the Lord in the way. Again, the subject is the same. The person is the same. The sinner here is also the man who fears the Lord. And so to summarize it all, the sinner of Psalm 25 is someone who is truly guilty. Truly guilty before God and who needs the pardoning and forgiving work of the Lord for them. But the sinner is also marked by other qualities. The sinner is marked by humility. 
The sinner is marked by keeping covenant with God. The sinner is marked by fearing the Lord. And it is this kind of person, the psalm says, that the Lord instructs. He teaches. He leads. He guides. And what does He instruct him in? Again, the psalm says He instructs him in the way. And this also, of course, is a very broad term that has many different ideas attached to it. In verse 4, the ways of the Lord are parallel with the paths that He teaches. And in verse 5, it includes the idea of being led or being caused to walk in the truth of the Lord. In verse 12, the way here is presented as a choice that has to be made. One can either choose one way or another way. And the Lord instructs the God-fearing man in the right choice. In the right way. Right? So there is a moral decision that is involved in following the way. There are ethics that come with this. And therefore, we might say that the ways of the Lord refers to both the truths of His Word that reveals who He is and how He has made and ordered the world and how He is carrying out His saving plans and promises and what He expects and demands of His people as well as how to apply every single word that is in His Word to our lives, to every aspect of it. We are confronted, of course, with an infinite amount of moral decisions that we have to make on a day-by-day basis. How am I going to raise my children? How am I going to love my spouse? How am I going to conduct my life as a Christian at work? How am I going to respond to this particular temptation that has now come before me? We are confronted with these paths, with these ways, with these choices every single day. And we have to decide, are we going to honor the Lord or are we going to aim to please Him and to glorify Him or will we not? Will we choose perhaps what seems to be the easier or the more comfortable path, even if it brings dishonor to Him? And as sinners, of course, our most natural bent, what we are inclined to do by nature, is to make choices that are in rebellion, is to make choices that are contrary to the will of God. It is to do that which is contrary to His revelation. But in God's goodness, He instructs us in and through His Word how to act ultimately contrary to the natural man, to the old man, to the old ways. How to live in a way that puts to death the old man and exalts day after day the new and the glory of God. 
And very often, because we live in a fallen world that is dominated by the power of sin, the ways of the Lord that we must walk in, the decisions that we have to make day after day, may put us in direct conflict with the world. They may come with a cost. You can think about something as simple and obvious as proclaiming the basic message that Jesus is Lord. That basic message can bring you into some severe conflicts. Much of the, mes- the, the Western world, in fact, would tell us to embrace things like multiculturalism and pluralism, right? Everyone can have their own beliefs. Everyone can have their own religion. You have your truth. I have my truth. Everyone has their truth. Truth. Let's just get along and live in our truths and not ever confront another person about them. But if Jesus, friends, has truly been raised from the dead in accordance with Scripture, and if He has been exalted at the right hand of God, if He has defeated sin and death, and if all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him, then He is Lord of all, and all must submit to Him. It's not a choice. You don't get an option in that. It's a requirement. It's a demand. And therefore, there can be no compromise with the world. We are met with a decision. Either we will listen to the world, we will close our mouths and never speak of Christ, and most especially never call men to repent of their sins, or we will listen to the One who is Lord, and we will proclaim His Lordship to all and call men to repentance. I was having a conversation with a young man this week and he was asking me this question. He was trying to wrap his mind around this seeming disconnect from what he sees when he reads the book of Acts. And he sees these Christians having all of their lives and their devotion oriented around the Gospel of Christ and what's happening. Uh, Many of them are suffering because of it. They're they're, they're being driven out of their homes. There's conflict that arises. And and he's wondering, why is that not the case now? Have we lost our, our zeal? Is there something that we're missing here? How could it be the case that these Christians at this time, and perhaps you could even say Christians in many other places, even during this time, can can be living the Christian life and there's real challenges, real suffering that comes their way, and yet we can live the Christian life, at least we think, with much comfort and much ease. Has something gone wrong? Are we missing something here? And I was asking him, he said that he was pretty evangelistic. He shares the Gospel with people frequently. And I was asking him, well, when you share the Gospel... What are the kinds of things that you're saying? And he went on to de- describe uh, how, how he would basically give a personal testimony. This is what the Lord has done for me. Right? This is what Jesus has done for me. You know, I, I was living a terrible life and I, I, I saw myself as a sinner and, and, and Jesus saved me. And, and it was just like a, a sharing of a, of a personal story. And that was it. Now, you just got to put yourself, friends, in the culture that we live in right now. 
Is that going to be offensive to anyone? Why would it be? Everyone has their own stories, right? Everyone has no problem talking about their experiences, their spirituality, their particular religions. Oh, I, I believe in this, and oh, I've seen these things, and oh, I've had these experiences, and, and that's just a matter of exchanging stories. But the moment you say your story's a lie and you must repent, that's when the toes start getting stepped on. That's when you're either going to be met with a response of the realization that you've been living in darkness and in sin and you need to repent and trust in Christ, or you're going to have an offended party who is not happy with what you just told them, that they're living in a lie. And I think you could probably look around at many of our modern evangelistic methods and you could see that's what the problem is. We have no problem sharing personal stories because that's what everyone does. But we have a very hard time saying, you must repent. Jesus is Lord you must submit to Him. That's what the Word requires of all men, all sinners. We are to proclaim Jesus is Lord. And when we proclaim that message, it places demands on people. It places demands on your life. That's where the controversy comes in. We have to ask, are we actually proclaiming this basic message? Jesus is Lord. Or are we going the way of the postmodern world and just sharing stories with everyone else? The Word requires us to proclaim the Lordship of Christ, to reject the Lordship of the world, and to exalt Him as King. And the Word of God teaches us what way what decision we are to make when we're thinking through what message we are to proclaim. Am I going to say something that is fine to the ears of the world or am I going to say something that exalts and honors God? And so the Lord instructs us. He instructs sinners in the way. And so we see the, the Lord's goodness in this way, but we also see that the Lord is good because He pardons guilt. He does not leave sinners in their guilty sin. Now, we've already touched on this point. as We saw verse 11 calling upon the Lord to pardon guilt. But I want to unpack this point a little bit further as we find it described in verses 6-7. to seven. In these verses, David asks the Lord to remember three times. First, he asks the Lord to remember His mercy and His steadfast love, which have been from of old. And this likely alludes to Exodus 34, verses 6-7, and seven, where the Lord there proclaims His name to Moses, right? reveals His character to Moses, saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is the fact that God is 
merciful, and full of steadfast love that makes Him a God who delights to forgive transgression and iniquity. The whole work of sending the Son into the world was to accomplish the work of securing the forgiveness of sins for His people while simultaneously maintaining and revealing His just and righteous character. Right? He doesn't sacrifice His justice for the sake of forgiveness. He brings them together so that at the cross you see mercy and justice meet. And David appeals to the Lord for him to remember His covenant name and His character as a merciful God. Which then leads him secondly to ask the Lord to remember not the sins of His youth or transgressions. And this here could refer to the sins of His past, right? the sins of His youth, but I think more likely the sins of His youth is the equivalent of what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, when he says there to Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love. These youthful sins, if you will, youthful passions refer to the kinds of things that men are prone to do when they lack maturity and are driven primarily by emotions more than sound reason. If two people have a disagreement, for example, if they are mature people, they should be able to work through that disagreement. They should be able to reason about it, debate about it, and at the same time show respect to one another. But often when you see children having a disagreement, what happens? Their emotions are flying everywhere. They may start yelling at each other. They may even get physical with each other. There's no control. They're driven by the passions and not by the reasoning. Not by the mind. These are youthful sins. I see my wife looking over at my children right now. Which means also that unfortunately, um, this can be a kind of sin that you see even in adults. Right? These Youthful sins are not just for the youth. Right? You see these emotion-driven responses all the time, even with adults. It's an unfortunate fact of the modern world that people are so controlled now by their emotions and so often lacking in self-control that they're unable, literally unable, to have any disagreements without getting inflamed and enraged and driven by uncontrolled passions. But David, of course, sees none of this as a good thing. They are sins and transgressions that need forgiving. And so he appeals to the Lord. Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember not my transgressions. And then thirdly, he asked the Lord, he asked that the Lord would Remember Him according to the Lord's steadfast love. And then notice with me in verse 7, for the sake of Your goodness, O Lord. 
So David here is appealing to God's grace here. He desires his sins to be forgiven, his guilt to be pardoned, but notice what is on the forefront of his mind. It is not that his sins would be forgiven just for his own sake. This isn't a self-serving request. He doesn't just want his sins forgiven so that he won't perish in hell or be condemned forever. Those were no doubt things that he probably wanted. Those are no doubt things that we should probably want as well. How could you not want that? How could you not desire to avoid eternal condemnation? But that's not what is chief in his mind. That's not what his greatest concern is. His greatest concern is the magnifying of the goodness of the Lord. Remember me. Forgive me. Pardon my guilt. Why? For the sake of Your goodness, O Lord. For the sake of Your name, He says in verse 11, pardon my guilt. David wants God to receive the glory that is due His name for being a good and forgiving God. And friends, it is to be the same for us. We are to pursue the glory of God in all of our lives. And and often it is the case that when people hear something like that, they think that it's going to be to their own detriment. You pursue the glory of God and this is going to result in your misery. You'll never be happy. My whole life was about making much of the name of God and not seeking my own welfare and seeking to make much of my own name, my life is going to be miserable. I'll never have joy. I'll never be happy. You often hear that as well when people will acknowledge that Christ is Lord verbally. They'll say, yes, I believe that there is a God. I believe that Jesus is, is the God, but I'll become a Christian later in life. I've got a lot of things that I want to do that I think they're going to make me happy now. I want to indulge in all my sins now. And then, because I know what the future holds, when I'm 80 years old on my deathbed, I'll say, Lord, I'm ready for your glory. False. That will never happen. You go about living your life like that, you will die like that. You delay now. You may delay forever. But it's also a lie. The idea that pursuing the glory of God results in your harm or your unhappiness is a lie that has its origins right in the garden. When Satan said to the woman, That she should delight in the very thing that God has prohibited for her and Adam to partake in. It'll bring you good. It'll make you like God. Knowing good and evil. It won't bring death. And what does it bring? It brings death. It brings misery. 
it brings. Even after the garden, offspring in her household, one of whom murders another. It brings bloodshed. It is no doubt a lie that we tell ourselves, that we believe in the world, that to pursue the glory of God means our misery and to pursue our own glory means our good. It is in fact the opposite that is the case. If you seek your own glory, you will find yourself miserable. You will find yourself never satisfied. All the sins you indulge in may give you momentary pleasure and then emptiness after. You will find yourself never content and worst of all, never free of the guilt and condemnation of sin. You will be a self-serving idolater and a person who buys into the lie of the serpent. But if you seek the glory of God, and if you seek the glory of His goodness, if your life is about making much of His name, then you will find yourself most content, most happy, most blessed, even if and when all things around you seem dark because you will have God. You will be able to have joy in the midst of suffering because you possess all things in possessing Christ as your King. And as Jesus instructs His disciples, you are to seek first the kingdom of heaven and then all things will be added. And so like David, we are to pursue the glory of God's name. And our pursuit of, our embrace of, our delighting in the forgiveness of sins is to the magnification of the goodness of God. But third and finally, we see in this psalm that the Lord is good because He will not let His people be put to shame. God will not let His people be put to shame. Now, this is the first request that is made by David in the psalm in verses 2 and 3. And it rounds out the psalm in verses 16 to 21. And what David is especially thinking about in regards to shame is essentially having his faith in the Lord proven to be worthless. Proven to be a lie. Now, David had faith in the Lord, of course, because of the promises that were made in the covenants. Especially, you can think of the Davidic covenant and the promises made to him. Promises that his throne would be established forever. Promises that one of his offspring would reign on the throne forever. And we know from his life that there, there were many, both within Israel and outside of Israel, who sought to undermine the faith of David by attacking him, by seeking to kill him, by overthrowing him, and by destroying his kingdom. Their pursuit of his fall was ultimately a pursuit of the fall of the promises of God. We know from...
that there were times when David was on the run and his enemies would mock him in the way that we read about in Psalm 22. They were saying, he trusts in the Lord. He has faith in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And had David perished, and had David's kingdom crumbled, his throne been destroyed, and the promises of God failed, then David would have been put to shame. His confidence would have been shattered. His trust in the Lord would not have been justified. But what he says in this psalm and what proved true in his own life was that all who wait for the Lord, all who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. Which is to say that God's promises will never fail. His Word will never falter. His plans will never be thwarted. He will establish His kingdom. The throne of David and the throne of God not only in heaven, but on earth. And of course, God showed Himself faithful to His Word in David's life by delivering him from all his enemies. But He shows Himself ultimately most faithful in that the promise He made to establish the Davidic throne forever through one of David's offspring, He has indeed fulfilled in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the Davidic offspring who would reign on the throne forever. And God has given, it, given evidence to all people that He is the exalted reigning Son and that the kingdom of Christ has been and will be established forever by raising Christ from the dead and seating Him at His right hand. This was God's public declaration to the whole world. That the promises I made to David have been fulfilled in the Son of David and the Son of God. He has defeated all His enemies. He has given to them the death blow that is now making them lose their life. He has shown that the serpent has no power, that sin has no power, and that ultimately death itself will die at His appointed time. And no shame will ever come to those who wait for the Lord and who hope in Him and who trust in His promises because no man or power in heaven or on earth, seen or unseen, will be able to thwart the promises of God. He has set His King on Zion, His holy hill. As we saw back in Psalm 2, this is one of the reasons why God mocks all of His enemies who are planning, who are scheming against the Lord and His anointed. Why? Because He has established Him on the throne. He has seated Him on Zion, His holy hill. And as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, that Zion, that Jerusalem, the 
capital of the kingdom of God is at present heavenly. A heavenly Zion. Christ reigns even now at this moment from heaven. And the saints who are united to Him reign with Him from heaven. But a day will come when the King will return a second time. And in that day, the kingdom of God will become the kingdom of the world. And all who are in Christ will enter into their promised inheritance of a promised land. A land that will be like the Garden of Eden, remade even better, where God and man will dwell with one another and it will cover the whole face of the earth. And then, what David says in verse 13 will have its greatest fulfillment. He says there, His soul, that is, the one who fears the Lord, shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Promises like this, friends, were partially fulfilled in the days of David and in the days of Solomon when their kingdoms were at peace for a time. But these promises ultimately point to the day when all God's people will rest secure in the promised land forever. And that land will come from on high when heaven and earth are joined together and God and man dwell together once again. This is the great vision that we see unfolded for us throughout the prophets. That this little sliver of land given originally to Abraham and his offspring was but a foretaste of a greater land to come. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was indeed looking forward to a greater land. A, a land that is built on foundations that endure forever. And as we see, especially in the prophet Isaiah, we see this vision of Jerusalem, which was at one point this tiny little city on the whole earth. It will expand such that all of the borders of Jerusalem will cover all the land of the earth. And all who dwell in that Jerusalem will dwell with God forever and ever. They will inherit the land. This is the great promise that is given to His people. The land we are on now, friends, is but fading. It is a shadow in comparison to the glory that is to come. In the same way that the temple, which was the house of God, was but a shadow of the living temple that would come in the person of Christ and within the people. The living stones. In the same way, that was a shadow. That original land promise was but a shadow of the world to come. And Christ has secured this for us. The Apostle Peter, in fact, says that this is an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us. This is what we are awaiting. This is what we are hoping for. And what the psalm teaches us is that if we wait for it, 
if we hope in it, if we are trusting in the Lord for it, we will receive it. And we will never be put to shame. And so friends, this is, this is why God is good. He has given us not only the forgiveness of sins, but He has given us promises that far exceed, infinitely exceed anything that we could ever deserve. He has given us a hope of a kingdom. And because of the work of Christ, we will never be put to shame, but will enter into that inheritance in His perfect time. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, the things that You have promised Your people are far beyond even our greatest imagination. These are promises that You have made long ago that began in seed form and have grown and blossomed. These are promises that You have made that the world would be renewed and that Your people would live forever, having bodies that are resurrected never to die again. And Lord, you have, you have given us a foretaste of these great things to come by giving to us the Spirit, by working the power of the resurrection within us so that the opposite may take place from what occurred in the beginning. In the beginning, we know from Your Word that You created the land and it was good. And then You placed man in his goodness upon it. And yet he fell and rebelled and lost it. But now we see in the Gospel that the orders are being reversed. You are a God who are remaking Your people. You are making us new creations. You are sanctifying us from within so that on the glorious day when you determine to remake the earth itself and to remove the curse, you will have a people who are ready and prepared to enter into that paradise forever and ever. And I pray, Lord, that this would be our hope that our lives are oriented around and that because we wait for it, will never put us to shame. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.